Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about the spectacular Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. It's in Palm Beach County, on the, on the endless, <laughs> innermost section of the county there, right in the middle of the peninsula of Florida, and, uh, well, the southern Florida. And there is happening a natural disaster of invasive plants of epic growth proportions. And the Ocean River Institute spent two years trying to address that, and we failed. So we're now going to talk about a new approach. And I'm very excited that my guests today are... Um, Wildlife biologist Andrew Eastwick. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Rob. And wildlife biologist Missy Junton. Juntonton. Junton. Help me out, Missy. Juntonin. Juntonin. I was going to do it right, but uh, <laughs> that's a good Finnish name, you know. <laughs> um, or is it Norwegian? Nope, Finnish, you're right. Yeah. Um, so. Um, uh, Andrew, why don't you start us out about why is, um, or why is there a Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge in Palm Beach County? Um, what's so special about this place that warrants being a national refuge? Sure, yeah. So um, the Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge is uh, one of the remnants of the historic Everglades ecosystem. And in fact, it's um, in the most northern portion of the historic Everglades. And it has some really unique features, and some of those features uh, include tree islands. So we have the highest density of tree islands in the entire Everglades um, greater area. And that's one thing that really stands this portion of the Everglades out in comparison to the rest. And uh, so in the, I guess it was about the, the middle 20th century after a lot of hurricanes and natural disasters. Uh, South Florida was inundated with um, the issue of trying to control floodwaters as well as uh, have enough water supply for uh, residents and agriculture. So in the middle of the 20th century, they started to develop a series of canals and dikes uh, to try and manage all that water. And when they were doing that, they recognized this area being very unique for migratory birds. So in 1951, under the uh, Migratory Bird Act, Con- Conservation Bird Act, they established this um, portion of the Everglades as a refuge. But it also serves as what's called a water conservation area for the purpose of water storage and flood control. Um, so it's technically owned by a state agency. The, the vast majority of the land is, is owned by um, a state agency called the South Florida Water Management District. So we have a license agreement um, where we manage it as a refuge uh, with um, the purpose of the refuge system as well as the needs that the state has um, for water supply and flood control. Yes, so I understand that to the north is Lake Okeechobee and agricultural lands and pasture lands for cattle and stuff. And the water from those areas are fed by canal into the Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge, and that begins the flow to 
through the Everglades and on to Biscayne Bay? Uh, so, so yes, um, for the most part, uh, uh, historically, so Lake Okeechobee would overflow during the rainy season. So that's going to be, you know, from anywhere from like June to October. Um, when we get a lot of rain in South Florida, that would fill up Lake Okeechobee. And historically, that would spill over and move south in what's called a sheet flow. So a very slow, large moving river, if you will, down the entire southern part of the peninsula. And um, so through a series of dikes and canals, Right below, just south of the lake, they um, uh, developed that for agriculture. So, so all that agriculture gets its water supply through those different series of canals. And uh, eventually that goes into um, other water storage areas to be cleaned because once it goes through those ag areas, it does get a lot of nutrients like phosphorus. So before it actually comes into the refuge, it goes through some uh, what's called stormwater treatment areas and gets cleaned, and then some of that will end up coming into the refuge through the canals that border the refuge. But the vast majority of the water inside the interior of the refuge is predominantly rain-driven. However, when those canals um, get at a higher level than the interior, some of that will come in. And that's why around the edges of the refuge, you see uh, plants that do very well in some of those high nutrient type of um, situations like cattail and uh, willow. Oh, well, yeah. So that sets up the, some wonderful habitats for all kinds of fabulous wildlife. Um, and, and Missy, you're our wildlife biologist about, about the wildlife. <laughs> uh, Andrew's also a wildlife biologist, so I just st- stuck my foot in my mouth here. But um, uh, tell us a bit about, uh, oh, oh, so I was down there last month, and you and Steve Henry were good to take me out in the airboat, out across those wet prairie mark grasses, and out to the tree islands. So um, it was just fabulous, the wildlife we were seeing. And the, the first encounter you see when you're heading out the out on the boat is you see alligators um, get, trying to scuttle out of the way or just kind of dip down out of sight and stuff. How, tell us about the alligators of Lockahatchee. Yeah, uh, Loxahatchee is known to have a lot of alligators. Um, through studies, they've actually proven that we have the highest density, although a lot of our alligators are smaller in size comparison to the rest of the Everglades areas. We do have the higher density of alligators, so it's not rare to, you know, spend a day in the field and you see upwards of 20 alligators just, you know, doing their daily tasks. Um, well, density means density means more alligators per square foot, right, as opposed correct. to just tonnage or something. Yeah, so that's a little disconcerting. <laughs> yeah, it depends on what you're doing. <laughs> like when you came <laughs> down, at least we had a lot of high water, so we didn't really see as many alligators as you might usually would when water is starting to recede. Um, as it is yeah. now, we're heading into our dry season, so water levels are receding creating, you know, a lot of dry Everglades marsh habitat, and then what you'll come to find is just a bunch of alligator holes. So that's usually where you're going to find the alligators later in the season, which also draws in the wading birds seeking out, you know, prey, which also become prey for the alligators. So it's definitely a a dangerous situation there, but it all seems to work well. That's great. So the the, the alligator depressions, the holes, are a place for the fish to congregate to feed the... um 
the waiters and, and on up the food chain and stuff. I noticed when Andrew took me out, um, I think it was later in the spring, uh, the water was much lower. And so the alligators, they, they couldn't push their feet down into the soft muck. You know, they had to flop to get out of the way because it was such a soft bottom that they weren't able to get up and run. Um, another one of the, uh, when Andrew took me out, I was um, fortunate to, uh, to actually see a, a snail kite and, um, to, you know, tell us a little bit about the snail kites and why are they special? Yeah, we actually, um, have quite a few snail kites throughout the Everglades region. Uh, they're actually cooperatively monitored from the University of Florida and they kind of monitor the population throughout the Everglades region, starting at the Kissimmee Chain of Lakes all the way down through Everglades National Park. Um, so the Everglades are an endangered species. They do breed um, Laxahatchee, including the conservation areas south of us. They kind of, you know, will pick and choose where to breed depending on what water levels are doing from year to year. Like this year, we haven't had any kind of breeding success yet, but as water levels recede, we're sure to see some more. Unfortunately, their primary food source is the apple snail, um, which is kind of limiting because there's a lot of competition as far as other species that also eat that apple snail. And then we also have an invasive apple snail, so, which from what we hear, it's, it's much harder for the juvenile snail kites to pick up and actually open up those apple snails because they're really big. They tend to drop them. They're expending a lot more energy going after these exotic apple snails compared to the native species. Oh, my gosh. We've got invasive apple snails as well as invasive plants. Yeah. Um, you know, aliens that have come in and, and are disrupting the ecosystem. Uh, but the population as a whole is holding pretty steady or... Yeah, it's been holding pretty steady on a slight incline for the past few years, so they're doing really well. A slight incline doesn't sound good. It's better than a decline. <laughs> oh, 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 incline upwards, good. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, they've yes. definitely been increasing their population, so things okay. are looking pretty good. <laughs> I tend to lay back when I'm inclining or whatever, <laughs> decline, whatever. Um, so, and it was one of the high points when you and I went out was you took me over to uh, find a pair of owls. Um, what's the owl story there? Yeah, so uh, the day that you were here, we actually went out in the impoundments, and uh, recently we have found a pair of great horned owls that seem to maybe making their way to nest over in that area. Over the past couple of years, they've nested in nearby, like, neighboring farmland, so it's pretty exciting that they, they're going to be nesting on the refuge this year. But we did have a pair of great horned owls. There's another pair of great horned owls out in the interior, so like in the central portion of the Everglades. And then when visitors come, they can also, you know, depending on how hard you're looking, we can also look for screech owls and barred owls are extremely popular on our uh, cypress swamp boardwalk. Yes, and I hear that there was a sighting of a short-eared owl, which is exciting because they're kind of grassland owls. I hadn't heard that yet, but that would be pretty exciting. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I misunderstood. I thought that there was a, a sighting of um, one of those open, open area owls. But, um, yeah, no, it's great. You've got the, um, such, such a good collection of owls there. Now, are there rodents for the owls to pick up, or are they going for turtles or what? Yes, there's many rodents. Um, even way out oh, okay. in the Everglades on tree islands, if you do some camera trapping, you will find 
anywhere from small mice to larger rats and marsh rabbits. So I have a feeling out in the impoundments, the marsh rabbits are probably what the owls are going after most. Not to exclude other reptiles and snakes, I do know that they go after snakes as well. Yeah. So the marsh rabbit are an important um, part of the ecosystem there, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. And we do have an impoundment just across from the great horned owls that is actually pretty overloaded with marsh rabbits lately. So that's been pretty good news over there. Well, that's great because I hear that bobcat prefer marsh prefer rabbit over anything else, and that um, so that the more um, you know rabbits that you have, the better it might be for bobcats. More suitable for bobcats. But on the yes, flip side, absolutely. I that and the bobcats around the headquarters office are actually pretty popular. Because if you come early enough or even stay a little bit late in the day, you're more likely to see the bobcats that have been hanging around. And then even a couple weeks ago, we, we saw a mom with her kittens. So that's always exciting for the visitors. Oh, that is very exciting. She, the mom had one kitten? Uh, three. Three kittens. Yep. That's spectacular. Yeah, they do uh, very well that, here. I hear that pythons are on the increase more to the south of you and that but they also like to eat marsh rabbits. So hopefully, um, well, as the pythons start moving into the Rockahatchee from the south, I think it would make all the more important the uh, tree islands for, for bobcat. Or maybe not. I mean, do the bob? I don't know if the bobcats get out to tree islands. They might stay around just where the stuff is. Yes, I'm sorry. They actually do make it out to the tree islands. Um, when we do camera trapping on the tree islands, we will see anywhere from bobcats, marsh rabbits, even raccoons, and I've also captured a few possums and armadillos. So that's hmm. pretty much any mammal that can make it out there and swim, including deer. Let's not forget the large white-tailed deer that we have down here as well. They they actually use the tree islands pretty heavily. Yeah, I noticed that um, more so when the water was lower with Andrew, that the deer, you know, were on, many were unable to go into the brush of the tree islands and that they would be because of the tanglements there, so they'd be forced to kind of stand in between the, the wet grass and just up on the little slope there to keep their hoofs dry because they don't want to get hoof rot and stuff. So this is a concern about the effects of having um, such entangling plants. Um, and, and speaking of that, oh, let's, let's, um, Andrew, so what's, what's the problem with these, um, um, you know, these invasives and, um, yeah, yeah, so um, so uh, invasive species are really the um, one of our, uh, I guess, biggest threats to the habitat here. Um, outside of you know just development in general, you know, developing agriculture and human development, you know, through um, you know, uh, housing and and things of that nature. The next greatest threat to habitat is invasive species, and we have. You know, even as Missy was mentioning before, everywhere from snails to plants to pythons to insects, so numerous different types of threats. But um, one of the biggest threats that we currently have is from two particular plants. One is a Melaleuca tree, which is native to Australia. And this tree was brought into South Florida in the early 1900s like a lot of other plants, as a desired ornamental. Um, 
folks really liked the way that the tree looked and it was pretty in their yards. And then they quickly found out that the bark holds a lot of water. So the theory was um, maybe that tree could actually help to drain this wetland that they wanted to use for further agriculture and urban development needs. So they actually, some of uh, the folks in Florida in the early 1900s actually spread the seeds of Melaleuca throughout, throughout the Everglades to try and drain it. And um, this, plant, this tree in particular does extremely well. It does not have any kind of natural threats here and it produces tens of millions of seeds when it um, is to full maturity. And if it ever has any kind of disturbance like a lightning strike or herbicide or anything that kind of disturbs the tree, it mass releases all of its millions of seeds and then quickly just creates this new forest. So in areas uh, of the Everglades that are very important, known as the sawgrass marsh, and you always hear references to the river of grass, and that's what they're talking about there is, is the vast sawgrass marsh. When you get a melaleuca tree out there, it completely transforms that marsh into a forest, and virtually no native wildlife can even penetrate in and use that uh, melaleuca forest once it's really well established, and so it, it becomes very difficult to treat. So it completely transforms that um, type of habitat, and it can also do that in the wet prairie and even on some of the tree islands. So it's, it's, it's a significant nuisance, and another significant nuisance plant that's even worse. Andrew, Andrew, and, uh, I, I have to, Andrew sure. we have to take a quick break. We have to okay. take a quick break. So before, uh, you know, thank you for telling us about that um, melaleuca, which is also uh, called the broadleaf paper bark, and it um, is in the eucalyptus family, and we know what a problem eucalyptus trees from Australia have been to different parts of this country. So we're going to take a short break and come back and learn about the other invasive plant after this break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. So we're talking about the Loxahatchee National, Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. And with me are Andrew Eastwick and Missy Kukunen. And where we're talking, Andrew was telling us about the two invasive plants that are smothering vegetation in the tree islands of the Loxahatchee. And uh, one of them is Luca, the broadleaf paper bark tree that's related to the eucalyptus and um, is also from Australia. And so once it takes hold, it's the dickens to get rid of. And uh, Andrew, what's the other plant? Yeah, so the other plant is uh, called Old World Climbing Fern. And um, it actually, uh, it's, it, it really impacts, um, as we were talking before, one of our unique features on the refuge, which are called tree islands. And uh, we have a significant number of tree islands in comparison to the rest of the Everglades ecosystem. And so that's one, one of the um, reasons that the refuge is so important is because we do have so much of that habitat. And Old World Climbing Fern particularly um, attacks that type of habitat. So it's, a, it's, a cli- it's actually a fern, and it's a, but it's a climbing vine. So um, similar to Melaleuca, around the middle of the 20th century, this plant was also brought in in a local nursery, used as ornamental, and um, escaped cultivation, quickly established in a state park uh, just about 30 miles northeast of here. And then probably in the late 80s, early 90s, we first found a infestation of that on the refuge. And uh, to put this in perspective, the refuge interior is about 141,000 acres. And in only about 10 to 15 years after we first found the plan on the refuge, it infested virtually every portion of the refuge in all habitats. But it does really well on tree islands because it likes to climb up vertical structures. So unlike the sawgrass marsh or a wet prairie um, that doesn't have a whole lot of large, uh, tall vegetation, the tree islands do have that component and so the old war climbing fern quickly um, gets a foothold on tree islands, eventually covering all of the canopy. 
And then within, you know, several years, probably less than even a decade, it can kill those trees by not allowing them to photosynthesize anymore. And then the vine continues to grow and grow on top of itself, and the weight on top of all that dead biomass collapses the island. So if you ever fly over the refuge, you'll see this, this lime green vine covering islands that have cratered in the middle. And um, it's, uh, it's without a doubt the worst um, threat that we currently have right now at the refuge. It is just terrible. You took me out to this large island that filled the camera lens. I mean, it was big. Yeah. And it was all just cratered in dead vegetation. It looked like a wasteland. Absolutely. And then once it's not only has it uh, completely um, collapsed that island, and which would make that island very difficult to come back to, to what it used to be historically, but now it's it's made it impossible for any native wildlife to even get inside of that island and use it for anything. It's, it's pretty much like you said, it's just a wasteland of um, dead, you know, biomass with a little bit of new growth continuing to grow on top of um, the, uh, what we call the, the rachis of the uh, or climbing from plants. So it, it does turn it into really a useless island that's uh, very difficult to try and, and um, restore. So tragic. Um, when I was out with um, Missy, um, I noticed that the difference in the reproductive strategies of Melaleuca and Ligodia, you were telling us how that Melaleuca, the, um, the paper bark tree, you know, literally just grows out of the water, out of the wet prairie grasses and stuff. And um, it's got these rows and rows of, of capsules that release lots of seeds into the water that's then spread around. But the Ligodium, being a fern, has these little tiny fern leaves, and fringing the leaf are like, I, I forget the number, like 200,000, you know, little spores all around the edges. And the, and the insidious thing is that they're carried by the wind. So uh, even though we do a good job cutting them out um, or killing them, uh, they just seed in so fast. Yeah, no, that's true, uh, and, and there is a little bit of a difference, like you mentioned, between um, the reproductive strategy of melaleuca trees and the old or climbing fern, and that is, you know, so a melaleuca tree has millions of seeds in these little capsules that it can drop, and they usually don't go very far from what you would call the mother tree, but quickly they create a forest um, underneath that one tree, and then those trees, you know, continue that same um, pattern over, you know, time. So those seeds usually don't disperse really far from the mother tree. However, old world climbing fern, since it climb, climbs up these vertical structures and has numerous spores attached to every single little frond on the plant, every little bit of wind that um, goes through the refuge basically spreads it. And the higher the wind, the more it spreads through during hurricane events or a lot mm. of strong uh, summer storms that we have. It disperses those spores um, very, very quickly and uh, very rapidly, and that's how it spreads so quick. Yeah, because you were saying such a big area in 10 years was infested. Exactly. Terrible. Uh, and, Missy, um, in what ways might these plants um, harm the wildlife? Well, I think, like, as Andrew had alluded to, once you have these 
invasive vegetative species covering an area, they tend to make that area really inhabitable for any wildlife, really. They can't traverse through there. They can't forage. They can't use the upland habitat for breeding or nesting or anything like that. And with the Ligodium, it can, it's so strong and it becomes so entangled. There has been reports of wildlife, you know, getting caught up and not being able to get out of it, or they just can't even get through to that tree island, so they won't be able to use that upland habitat. Yikes. And I understand that the pythons are becoming a, more of a nuisance in the Everglades uh, to the south. And um, might they be uh, increasing the importance of, the, of having healthy tree islands in the Lakahatchee? Yeah, I would say so. A couple of reports have come out that maybe allude to the fact that the pythons have removed pretty much the entire marsh rabbit population from Everglades National Park, and there is The evidence. entire population. Yikes. Yes. Sorry, but yeah. It's been very increasingly difficult to find marsh rabbits down south. And there's been evidence to suggest that pythons are making their way north through the other water conservation areas and on their way to Loxahatchee. National Wildlife Refuge. So the tree islands are definitely going to become way more important because we do have so many tree islands that provide that refugia to bobcats, marsh rabbits, and other small rodents that, you know, the pythons will have to search a little bit more, but hopefully it provides them better breeding grounds and we can keep up. Yeah, so we need to have healthy tree islands to support those bobcats and marsh rabbits and um, rodents and, and all those, the whole ecosystems that make the Lockahatchee the wonderful place to visit that it is. Exactly. Um, so about two years ago, uh, the Ocean River Institute, we got involved um, because the South Florida Water Management District, they called on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to increase the, uh, they were putting in about $2 million in funding to manage these invasive plants, and they were being matched by the state. But as Andrew and Missy have explained, it just wasn't enough. Um, but before I get into that, um, maybe we should, I should, Andrew, tell us about, you know, how, how do you take on this uh, Melaleuca and um, uh, Ligodium? How do we, how, how is it, how do you manage it? So there's, um, there's, there's a few different uh, strategies that you can use with uh, these invasive plants. Um, and for the most part, the, the most effective tool that we have is through herbicide treatment. There's also uh, mechanical methods as well as biological controls that can assist um, fire, prescribe fire at the right time and at the right heat for the right amount of um, duration can, can be effective as well. But but by far, the, the greatest tool that we have that provides the, the biggest bang for the buck is herbicides. And uh, so sometimes we use um, uh, helicopters to do very large um, jobs, like uh, when you have a pretty thick melaleuca forest, you can use a helicopter to spray herbicides on that because there's not going to be much native vegetation that's going to be impacted. But for the most part, we have to use ground-based contractors to treat these um, with a machete and with herbicides uh, that are sprayed from backpacks. So it's, uh, it's very difficult work. It's time-consuming. And uh, to treat the melaleuca tree, they actually have to cut around the bark of the tree and spray a small amount of herbicide, and then within a few weeks to a month, 
that tree will end up dying. Uh, for old world climbing fern, they have to traverse all of the tree islands on foot, wading through water, you know, with waders and long sleeve shirts and pants and, you know, face protection, eye protection, all these different um, uh, clothing to, to make sure that they don't get the herbicide on themselves in, you know, this very hot, uh, mucky environment and cut the ligodium with the machete. And, you know, as we were talking, it climbs up over trees, so it's very difficult to cut this. And then once it's cut, they have to spray with uh, herbicide from the backpack all the, ligo- all the old-world climbing fern that's um, at their feet now and it's, uh, as you can imagine, under the circumstances, just very difficult and challenging work. So um, that's one of the reasons that it's, uh, it, it really has uh, caused such a problem here at the refuge because of that difficult way of having to control it. Yeah, Missy, it was nice to take me out there, and I actually got to see some of the contractors working, and I am so impressed with how hard those guys worked. They were going after Melaleuca. They had to... They were wading around water up to their waist. One guy got water into his um, waders, and so he had to climb on the boat and, and airboat and empty his waders, and then he went right back to it again and stuff. And um, You know, the, the Melaleuca plant tree itself, it's like a eucalyptus. It's got a third of the diameter is bark, and it's this papery, and they have to cut through all that bark, and then they have a blue dye in the herbicide, so we know what trees have been treated uh, but it's just the amount of work for a little bit of cutting it out. And then I was impressed that they would leave the taller trees standing, as you said. They would girdle them. Uh, but the, use, they could use the taller trees to cradle um, the cut maluka branches or the smaller trees that were cut out because the point is to keep the maluka out of the water so it doesn't see, you know, seed into the water too quick or something and, and to um, re- it reduce its ability to sprout and so forth. So... Uh, just an amazing amount of work, and my hat takes off. To, I take my hat off to them. Uh, so the the problem became simply one of money. You know, they just need enough money to uh, pay the contractors. You'd have three, uh, five in a boat, and so three boats. That's fifteen contractors. Um, you know, it's just a matter of of having you know the funds to employ them to do enough of the of the work to get ahead of it. And try as they might, they just didn't have it. So the, um, the, the, the water district decided that, well, the feds have to pay in more money because we're not getting ahead of it. And this is like a natural disaster. And so the uh, Ocean River Institute, uh, we saw it as a natural disaster worthy of congressional support. And the, the plan was that if they only had another $5 million a year for five years, they could get the plants under control, and then expend the current levels at keeping them when they sprout out and so forth. Because as, as Andrew alluded to, if he didn't say out directly, they sprout so quickly that you have to go back, you know, three, three years in a row and, and um, repeatedly to these places. So the Ocean River Institute, we, um, so we have a webpage, oceanriver.org, O-R-G, and if you visit it, you'll see there are six campaigns there, and one of them is the Lockahatchee. And the last two years, people, for the last period, people were going there and signing on to a letter to Congress to Senator uh, Rubio saying, please try to appropriate some money for this. And uh, two 
8,385 individuals signed on to our Save the Wakahatchee League and signed a letter. Hundreds wrote personal comments why they care about the Wakahatchee. Mostly they, they see it as a vacation destination, recreation uh, place to see wildlife and with family and stuff. And they, uh, they, they wrote from all 50 states, including South Dakota and Wyoming, um, plus, there were individuals writing from Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. They all joined in. Uh, I organized, uh, we organized our letters so that they were by political district. We had 361 Floridians up front uh, for the letter to Senator Rubio. And uh, I stopped in his office in Washington, D.C., delivered the letter, a paper print of the letter, um, which staffers love to just flip through and see who's writing about this stuff and what they're saying and stuff. Uh, and I, I made clear to the staffer the, that um, if the senator were to call for federal funds to save the Lockahatchee from these smothering invasive plants, that the Ocean River Institute, we would, um, we have constituents of, um, from every Senate district who would call on their senators to support this Florida action. You know, that's often an issue in politics is if you want something for your state, you got to give the other senator something for his state. Well, here we had it all packaged and ready to go. But, of course, Washington is not about spending money on such things. And so that, that whole effort um, failed to raise the funds needed to manage those Wakahatchee invasive plants. Uh, and so uh, we're going to, once again, i got to take a short break. And when we come back, I'll introduce you to how we're taking a creative approach to make the most of the resources that we already have in play uh, and include... The, the many volunteers that are this National League of uh, Lockahatchee champions. So we'll, we'll just take a short break and be back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. 
They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about saving the Lockahatchee National Wildlife Refuge from invasive plants, in particular the old world climbing fern, uh, Lidodium, Lidodium, and the um, paperbark uh, tree that's called Melaleuca. And uh, with me are, are Andrew Eastwick and uh, Missy Juntaran. Uh, Duntenin? Duntenin. Duntenin. Okay. I'll, yeah. Tune in next week when we have a... I say your name correctly. So it's really exciting that... Um, so there we were frustrated that we just weren't going to get the money to save this. You know, we weren't going to... So we're not going down without a fight. We've decided to, um, to take a different approach, which is what are the limiting factors here? And the limiting factor is... You know, is there a way to come up with a tool that would enable the contractors to double their cutting efficiency? If that, was ha- that could happen, that would be enough, because all they're asking for is doubling the amount of money they're putting into it, and the most expensive part of their management are the contractors, and, and the most important part, too. So we like to provide jobs as well. Uh, so wouldn't it be great if we come up with a tool that would double their cutting efficiency, Another another uh, part of the, another objective is to prime the pump for a national company to brand and market Lockahatchee Melaleuca mulch. So it's a popular mulch. Is there a way that we could get um, those branches that otherwise might be sprouting or setting seed out of the Lockahatchee into the mulching machines? And the third thing is just to bring the sustainable management of these two invasive plants to within the current budget. And that means, you know, the former two of, of getting stuff more going, you know, getting, increasing the efficiency of managing it. So for the first one, um, the Ocean River Institute, we contracted a physicist uh, of the MI, who was formerly of the MIT Media Lab to lead an effort to find and develop the best tool for contractors to cut invasive plants with. 
and it's going to be an inclusive process. It's going to be very transparent. Uh, we're going to have collaborative workshops um, that'll begin. We'll have a workshop right by the refuge, maybe at the refuge. Um, and the idea is to uh, gather before the participants all the different current devices that there are out there, handheld devices, uh, implements of wood plant cutting, as I call them, uh, and then uh, in groups, try to figure out, brainstorm possible improvements to those or, or combining those or whatever it is that would be a tool to give to the um, uh, contractors. And so the groups will then critique each other and vote on the preferred solutions, and then that will go back to our engineer to design a new cutting device, uh, and it will be an open source process, so that means people can, other engineers can put in their ideas, they can take our plans for their own cutting devices, because um, we're all in this together trying to figure out what's the best way to do it, and so that'll be a follow-up workshop with um, the finalists, you know, like, There'll be, you know, maybe there'll be a couple of different solutions we come, they come up with. And so we'll bring those back um, and, and field test them and run them through the paces. and let Because it, it comes down to the, the users are the ones who know best what the problem is, not us up here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but those people who are marching into the tangle of um, Melaleuca and Lycodium. Um, yeah, so, so Andrew, you've seen... I mean, I think they just, I mean, they're, they're so efficient with those, those machetes that I don't know if we're going to be able to do any better than that. But uh, wouldn't it be great? Yeah, yeah, you're right. They, they are pretty um, impressive with their machetes. I've never seen anything so sharp, and they can cut through it pretty quickly. But, yeah, if there's any kind of new innovative tool or technique that could reduce their time to treat a tree or even the ligodium, you know, to cut through the ligodium, uh, before they spray it, any any time savings on the labor would definitely um, make the uh, the effort uh, a lot more uh, effective. Yeah, it would go further to remove the um, plants and stuff. So we're also the second goal. For the second goal is we're talking to, or I'm talking with Flory Mulch, and that's a Florida-based company that's already marketing Melaleuca mulch. Nationally, like I can go down to the, the Lowe's department store and pick up some Flory mulch, some Malaluca mulch. And so for that, we're going to organize volunteers to run a pilot program of um, how can we get the Malaluca out of the, uh, away from the tree, off, off the prairie grass and to the landing so that the, um, the company could bring a, a truck to the landing but what's involved in getting it out? And that's something we can, we can have volunteers work at. We don't want to disturb the, the work of the contractors. Um, and, but the problem is, is that the company right now is using, uh, they want Melaleuca plants that are 12 inches in diameter or larger uh, because that will give them a 9-inch core of hardwood, hardwood that um, they use for the um, mulch and um, so that's an obstacle that, because um, we don't have those kind of trees in, in the Lockahatchee. Those are, those are really big trees. Um, so friends are coming up with ideas of are there ways of um, getting the bark off and, um, and making it easier for them? Or can we prove to them that it's worth uh, taking smaller branches because we can figure out the obstacles? And then the third thing is, um, the third thing is to keep you within budget. So, uh, the way we can keep it within budget is that 
the um, Ocean River Institute, we are a non-profit, nonprofit, so we can step up to ridding the Lockahatchee of invasive plants with funds that the state and federal budgets, where they leave off of state and federal budgets. And individuals and businesses, uh, we're approaching foundations right now, can designate precisely money to be spent on precise things, such as maybe we'll find out that just a weed whacker with a saw blade you know, on it is the way to go, and then we can raise the money to um, buy those, provide the contractors with those equipments because it's not in the current budget and stuff. So by working together, we're able to, to turn this thing around. And what's exciting is by getting a league of people from all over the country engaged in helping to care for uh, the Lockahatchee National Wildlife. So, Andrew, what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I think uh, a lot of those ideas are a good way to to start. Um, yeah, and to come up with new methods. Uh, I think uh, I think if we found a tool that was more innovative, um, that could really speed up the contractors. Uh, time to do the work. I think that would be one of the one of the better ones um, that could really help with the effort. Right. The idea of the uh, getting the mulch going is hopes that the um, the company would brand it as Maluka mulch from the Lockahatchee and charge a premium for those that mulch, and that would raise money that could go to. Um, South Florida Water District, whoever's paying for the contractors to do their work, uh, and maybe also um, cover the, the collection of the, uh, of the mulch if there's a way to do that that's, that's feasible. The problem with gathering the mulch is that we have to uh, raise the money to rent an um, a airboat and to pay the, the refuge staff to man the, the, a person, the, the airboat and stuff. So there are expenses in trying to make mulch out of it, but if the nation cares about this, uh, the Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge, then uh, maybe, who knows? It's nothing ventured, nothing gained. I'm, um, we've spent the hour uh, talking about the Loxahatchee, and Andrew and, and Missy, thanks a lot. Um, uh, Andrew, you have some closing words you'd like to share with us? I, I, I guess I would just like to thank everybody for listening and for trying to gain an interest in uh, this important refuge and, um, you know, how it is critical habitat for uh, the remnants of uh, the only Everglades ecosystem on the planet. So it's just great to get a chance to talk with you and, and all your listeners and give them some information about this wonderful place. Thank you. Missy, Jonathan, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> No worries. Comment. Uh, no, I would just pretty much ditto on what Andrew said. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. And if you're ever in the Palm Beach area, come out to Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. It's definitely a great learning experience, and it's beautiful. It's definitely once-in-a-lifetime thing you should try to visit. Andrew and Missy, thank you so much. And thank, thank you. you. Thank listeners. you. And thank you, listeners, for spending time with the Loxahatchee National Wildlife Refuge. For more information or to participate, please visit www.oceanriver.org. And when you're there, consider subscribing to our free e-alerts for opportunities to speak out with your own voice on a number of issues. When something's happening, we send it out and we get people to comment, and it means a lot to decision makers 
We're the only organization that brings a cacophony of different voices to decision makers on how to manage an environmental issue. Um, so please take a look at that. And then thanks for listening, and please take care of yourselves. And then take a bit of care for this planet of ours. Until next time, thanks for caring. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Dr.